Welcome to Stop the Hammer Podcast. If there was ever an episode that could define what this podcast is all about and why I started it in the first place, it is probably, at least for now, the story I'm about to tell you. And it's not just because it has to do with Stephen Crea, but because of the way the sentencing actually happened. As you know, um, the first part of his sentencing happened on August 6th, and it mostly dealt with his pre-sentencing report and a forfeiture issue, which I spoke about briefly in a previous podcast. So this was just a continuation of that first part of sentencing. And this, this last part happened on um, Thursday. And so it included, well, there were financial parts and then also you know he was sentenced for his actual charges and I wrote a pretty extensive story on the for the it's on the Italian Inquisition site and I'm going to put a link in the description and also Ruckus Radio podcast read the story Rich did you know a fabulous job and so I thank him and the Ruckus team for actually getting the story out there. And I'll also include the link to his podcast in the description. So you can, if you want to, you could actually listen to him. He's always entertaining um, in how he reads different stories. Um, but there's a lot of documents that I included in this particular story just to back up all of the information that I was putting down um, because there was a lot of things that needed to be documented and the facts needed to be shown. And so I had all the facts, and that's what I do. I'm going to give you all the facts and, you know, the the real truth behind the story. So I'm not going to really get into all of the nitty-gritty of every aspect of the sentencing because it's already there on paper, but there are things that I couldn't actually describe on paper that maybe wouldn't be done justice on paper if you know I I had included that so I wanted to um, touch on some of those issues and so if you remember in my very first podcast I talked about why I traveled to New York to witness Terrence Caldwell sentencing and you know he was sentenced on the same day as Matthew Madonna and Christopher Londonio, the three other defendants in this Michael murder, Michael Meldish murder trial. And that happened, I believe, back on July 27. And the reason it happened like that, and they all weren't sentenced together, just in case you know you are new to the story, is because of the COVID crisis and Matthew Madonna and Christopher Londonio opted to do their sentencing, opted to do it remotely via audio and video. Video really just means that the judge and the defendant, their lawyer, and then one of the prosecutors would be on like a video conference, and then anybody else, the public or the press, would be able to listen in via audio. You know, you can't like see any of the defendants or, you know, any of the actual proceedings. You just are able to, you know, listen to it. So that's what happened in Stephen Crea's, um, how it happened with Stephen Crea both on August 6th and then this past Thursday. And the reason why he couldn't be sentenced at the same time as 
the other three was because the facility where he's in right now, you have to like schedule the time for the video room and it wasn't available on that day so that's why it had to be put to a, a different day and then the reason why it was continued was because you only have a certain amount of time and that first part of his sentencing because there were so many issues in regards to his pre-sentencing report it took two hours and so it had to be continued because he ran out of, because they ran out of time and then um, this actual part of his sentencing only took 45 minutes so if you remember in one of the reasons why I actually did go to New York to see Terrence Caldwell's sentencing was because I had spent so much time, you know, delving into Stephen Crea's case and I wanted to be able to fill in all of the details of the picture. And you can't really do that if you're reading an article or reading transcripts. And so it just helps. It's like, I guess the best way to describe it is that it's like when they colorize black and white pictures and it just brings it to life and so that's really how it was and why I did that and even though I you couldn't couldn't necessarily see any of the you know the defendants or the judge or the prosecutors hearing it helps too because you are able to hear all of the inflections and the tones and the nuances that you're not able to decipher if you were just reading you know a transcript and it's not something that the court reporter is gonna put down you know as she's recording the proceedings because you you know you just that's not just what you do unless it was something that was super obvious you know like they did it the judge went ha 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 instead of just a under the breath type of snickering so you can't really pick up all of that stuff by reading a transcript you need to be there or listen in and I really wish that all of you could have listened to this 45 minute sentencing and that it was and I, and I wish that it was available for everybody to hear because then I wouldn't be doing this podcast I would just have put that recording on the website here at on the YouTube channel and you could have listened to it yourself but that's not allowed and you can't record it and I don't even think that the court itself the court itself makes a recording of the proceeding other than you know what the tra court, court reporter transcribes because if you did I think that maybe your whole perspective of everything would change no matter what your view was in regards to Stephen Creo or any of the defendants in this case. And if you remember in that very first podcast, I talked about how the judge spoke derisively to Terrence Caldwell about his family, how she was demeaning to Matthew Madonna, and how she was extraordinarily cruel to... Christopher Landonio after chiding him for his loyalty and telling him I hope your loyalty keeps you warm at night well if you would have heard what I heard you would realize that all of that was just a horrible warm-up for what she had in store for Stephen Crea and it was just really like the icing on top of the cake as far as what happened throughout the entirety of 
the pretrial hearings and the trial itself. And in truth, it's the icing on a cake that I wouldn't even serve to my worst enemy. You know, I had called all of the previous sentencings and the things that were said outrageous, but this was outrageous to the nth degree, outrageous times 10,000. And if there was a better word than outrageous that I could find right now, I would actually use that word, but I don't even think there's a word in the dictionary to describe how horrific the sentencing and these 45 minutes of listening to the sentencing was. And even as a, an objective third-party person, you couldn't have walked away from that sentencing and thought to yourself, well, this is how a fair and impartial justice system is supposed to work because if that's the way you think, then that means that the justice system is in a whole hell of a lot more trouble than we, are, we already think it is regarding you know, numerous other issues. But it shouldn't be surprising considering how this entire case went. However, if you're going to sentence someone, just sentence someone and you know keep your feelings. You're supposed to be neutral. I mean, that's what fair and impartial is. And you know, a judge is supposed to be neutral. And even if you're going to say something derisive to somebody, at least try not to snicker under your breath because a lot of that happened in the sentencing, which is why I wish that you guys could hear it all because you would be able to hear every single little inflection that was said throughout the entirety of this 45 minutes when the judge was speaking. And that's not how a judge should be speaking, especially a federally appointed judge. At least I hope that's not how judges speak. You know, any judges I've faced, they don't speak that way. Not that I've faced a lot of judges, but, you know, I've been in the courtroom before. So anyway, you know, the worst part of all of this snickering and under-the-breath type of laughter, I guess you would call it, happened when she went above the guidelines or the recommended guidelines regarding, you know, different issues. For example, there was a disagreement about the forfeiture amount that happened back in the August 6th portion of this entire sentencing where the government wanted $1.3 million in principal for a loan to uh, Randy Silverstein and then $1.1 million in interest on that loan, and then another $188,000 that they claim Stephen Crea got from his co-defendant, Joseph Ditello, for a loan back in 1999. And when she made her ruling, she decided to impose that $1.3 million, dismiss the $1.1 million, and then, because there wasn't any evidence that he extorted the money, as the government claimed, and then reduce that $188,000 down to $40,000 because the government came up with the number out of thin air and couldn't provide any evidence that he extorted any money from Joseph Ditello, which he didn't because, you know, you have to go read the article. You know, I lay it all out for you. So the defense wanted to appeal the $1.3 million, and the judge wasn't, didn't, wasn't necessarily willing to allow them to appeal that. And the government, of course, you know, fought it and 
didn't want them to appeal, but then she was going to let the government appeal the portion of the forfeiture that she dismissed. So there was just this ensuing argument, and she ordered them to try to come to an agreement, and they did, and they agreed on a $1 million forfeiture, which, as I said in my article, should have been more than enough to satisfy any sort of fines that she could impose on him, you know, for these offenses. And instead of her saying, well, okay, you know, you're giving $1 million, that's a huge chunk of change, you know, that I think that satisfies your financial punishment for, you know, these crimes we're accusing you of. Instead, what she did was impose an additional $400,000 on this guy, one of the many gifts that she didn't impose on any other defendant in this case, including those that the government claimed were in the same high-ranking positions and financially benefited from, you know, these various alleged crimes. And so... That was bad enough, but when she actually imposed that $400,000 extra, this, you know, fine that she didn't have to impose, it was completely her choice. And in fact, the government, and actually before that, it was above the guidelines. Then she admitted it was above the guidelines. And when she had asked the government what they thought in regards to the fine, they said, and probation as well, said that the recommended guidelines for any fines that she might decide to impose was between fifty and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and yet she decided that she wanted to go above the guidelines and impose this four hundred thousand dollar fine and while she was doing it you know if you're gonna do the fine then give them the fine but don't make a mockery of it because that's basically what she did she made a mockery of it and snickered under her breath as she as she derided Stephen Crea and his entire family for that matter and just didn't perform her job as she should have I believe as obviously not a fair and impartial judge because you know at that point I guess you know because that was at the end of the sentencing I guess that it doesn't really matter if you're not fair and impartial throughout the entire thing why why start now but a judge should at least take a pill and not let your personal feelings get in the way of what it is that you're sentencing somebody for and that wasn't even part of a sentencing that was just this ridiculous fine that was just like an extra punch in the face really is what it was and it was just you know outrageous you know if you're gonna fine him then fine everybody else too but that didn't happen either because all of those other defendants weren't the government's target so in addition to this extra fine that she gave to him she also went above the guidelines in this one of the charges against Stephen Crea was use of a firearm which was in relation to the Michael Meldish murder and the recommended guidelines for that particular charge was five years well she decided that she wanted to make a symbolic statement and instead of giving him five years her symbolic statement was to give him a life sentence so this, in addition to the mandatory life sentence, she had no choice on that. She had to give him life sentence for the three counts related to, directly related or grouped together with, for the Michael Meldish murder, 
but this extra use of a firearm count was only, she was only legally bound to give up to five years, and she decided to make a symbolic statement, and while she was doing that, she did the same thing she did with the $400,000, and, you know, kind of just was sarcastic about it, really. I mean, that that's just mocking and derisive and scoffing under her breath, and that's just not appropriate. And I just want to go back to that $400,000 for one minute when, you know, she made all of her little comments that she did. She imposed this fine on this guy when previously she had said that she didn't know anything about his financial picture, but she imposed it on him anyway and then made, you know, stupid comments, and that's not okay. It's just not okay. There's nothing okay about it. Just like her symbolic statement in sentencing him to life for use of firearm instead of the maximum recommended sentence of five years, when he wasn't even the alleged trigger man in this case, but if you were going to do it as a symbolic statement, then why didn't you impose it on everybody else who was convicted along with him for this crime, you know? Instead, she just wanted to make a symbolic statement and give him, you know, the special symbolic sentence and not, you know, spread the love around to everyone else. Because if she was doing this for the reasons for which she stated, which was to deter any young people from, you know, joining this organization in the future, then the best way to make a symbolic statement like that would have been to impose it on every other defendant that had been convicted of that same crime. Right? I mean, am I wrong about that? If, you know, you're, you're trying to make a statement and make a make a difference, then everybody should have gotten the same thing. So you can look at that any way you want. I see it in one way, but it's just more clear to me than it has ever been before exactly what was happening in this entire case. And I highly encourage you to check out the Guilt for the Guiltless story so you can see all of the details yourself. And unfortunately, the story isn't over yet in regards to the sentencing. Because even though the murder of Michael Meldish was the spotlight charge of the entire trial and was the focus of a lot of the majority of the trial, for some strange and odd reason, it wasn't the focus of what the government talked about or what even... Judge Seibel talked about in their various speeches. For example, the government brought up all of these different things that were completely irrelevant to the case. They brought up names that Stephen Korea wasn't even charged for. They brought up a charge for which he was acquitted. And, you know, she also brought something up in regards to the um, hospital corruption that Stephen Korea had nothing to do with. There was another guy named Randy Silverstein. So the point, and I'm not going to get into, you know, every, all the details of that. It's all detailed in the written story that I put together. But the point of what I'm, why I'm bringing this up is because if you're a reporter 
or a member of the general public, and maybe you didn't follow the story from beginning to end, and, you know, I didn't follow the story that was happening. I didn't, you know, get into the story until afterwards when, you know, I was investigating that larger overall story. But when if you're a reporter and you're tuning in to see what's going on, you're going to base whatever story you write on what it is that you're hearing in the sentencing. So if you hear all of these different names, Joseph Ditello and Sean Richard and Carl Alzheimer and Edward Davidson, and if you don't know the story behind those and don't know that they're completely irrelevant to any of the charges at hand, you're going to report on that because that's what you do. You report on what you hear. You report on the event. So what happens then is that, I mean, there's limited research that you can do regarding that. So you're going to take the government at its word, you know, the proceeding at its word that what is being said is actually the truth. And you're going to take that information and you're going to print it. And then this misinformation of things that are completely irrelevant to any of the charges at hand gets put into the general the public arena and then it's spread all around and so people are going to read that and they're going to say oh well you know he did this to Edward Davidson and he did that to Carl Alzheimer and this to Sean Richard and maybe they're not going to put in all of the background information that he never did anything or was charged with anything in relation to Joseph Ditello. He, the charge regarding Sean Richard was dropped and wasn't included in the trial proceedings for a buttload of reasons. You know, you have to go back to read about it. I wrote about it briefly in, you know, this, the story that I wrote regarding the sentencing. And he was acquitted of the charge of Carl Alzheimer. And Edward Davidson was probably the most irrelevant person for the government to bring up at all. But a news reporter is going to report that stuff because, as I said, they're reporting on a proceeding. And so they're going to write the story based on what it is that they hear. And the unfortunate thing is that all of this information is going to go out there and it's wrong. And it just paints further paints this picture of someone that isn't true. And what happens, and I'm going to give you a perfect example of this, is that the government sent out a press release. And unlike the press release that they sent out for Christopher Londonio, Matthew Madonna, and Terrence Caldwell, they didn't include any of the quotes, any of those wonderful quotes from Judge Seibel. They really, it was surprisingly, I wouldn't call it tame, but limited in what they printed. However, the way that they wrote it was in a way that they kind of made Stephen Creel guilty of everything under the sun, you know? And that's not true because that's not what he was charged with, all of these other crimes that were specific to different defendants in the case. And in this press release, they actually listed all of the other defendants in this case because the whole headline was the final defendant in this 2017 indictment is sentenced, blah, 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 blah. But what happened and what did happen was that people picked that up and ran with it. And so it got spread everywhere, not only in the general news media, 
but also in organized crime related forums and on Facebook you know there's a bazillion organized crime groups and all of these people were reprinting all of this misinformation and what's also surprising and actually not surprising is that the way that the government made their speech in the actual sentencing was very similar to the press release that was sent out by the Justice Department even though there were no specific quotes in there because maybe they were embarrassed by all of the horrible things that were said by a fair and impartial judge like the judge that was on this case and so it just was odd to me that it was similar it was it was like it was done in a way so that even though we weren't including all of these quotes we're still gonna get our message across and make these sort of accusations against him against Stephen Crea even though we know that he was acquitted for this and the other three or four people that we talked about Stephen Crea had nothing to do with but we're just gonna put it in there we're gonna put it out there because you know we just wanna make it make him seem like a more terrible person than we've already painted in case anybody didn't quite get the picture that we were painting and you know I'm not just talking off the top of my head I mean I am talking off the top of my head but you know I worked in have worked in journalism for 30 years I worked at daily newspapers I worked at weekly newspapers and you know I also worked in public relations so I know how both sides of the machine works and how they work together and how they combine forces per se to do the things that they do and send out all of this misinformation you know I worked in consumer affairs and or public affairs and consumer public relations and probably pub public affairs was the worst of it all but it's just this whole image that they're trying to present of Stephen Crea because it's all about Stephen Crea this whole thing is about Stephen Crea believe me or don't believe me you can look at the proof it's all about Stephen Crea and this is the image that they want and so as I said it goes into all of these forms which are like a gossip fest basically and all of these people who you know hate organized crime and you know yet they're on there you know every single day and gossiping about everything and you know claiming that they know this person that person and they heard this and heard that well you're not dealing in facts so they take a government press release or a news story that was written by somebody who wasn't familiar with the case and it just spreads like wildfire and that's not the way it should be working I mean the the it just doesn't stop it's uncontrollable and it's wrong it's just absolutely wrong and you know you see this actually in other aspects of the media you know if you look at the current current events and you know even politically what's going on and one side says this and the other side says that and it's not really the whole picture because it's skewed to a certain viewpoint and so all that it's doing is just spreading misinformation and you really have to dig hard sometimes to take to find the whole picture of what's really happening because everybody is throwing all of these pieces of garbage into this big pot and the big pot is the general public that just is taking it all in thinking that this is really the way it is when it's not even near what the actual truth of the matter is and the same is can be said for you know this 
particular case. It's just a bunch of garbage, really, what's, you know, out there and how it spreads and just the misinformation. It's just insane, really. And one of the best ways that I found, and I'm going to put the picture up on the um, screen for you to see, is that there's this Twitter account. It's called CWB Chicago. And it's really like a scanner. And, you know, it's humorous, actually, sometimes the things that they post. But they posted one day this picture of people on, at a park in, on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. And they took it from two different angles. And if you looked at the one angle, it looked like everybody was all cramped together and there was no social distancing happening. And so if you're of a particular viewpoint and you see that, you're going to lose your mind. But it was because of the angle from which they took that picture. When in actuality, the picture, if you took it, you know, the right way, shows that all these people were, in fact, practicing social distancing. So depending on what viewpoint you wanted to present would determine which picture you would actually post on the internet to stir up trouble or to get people to sway to your particular viewpoint or side or whatever it is. And that's exactly how the public relations machine works is they will just put in certain information to skew a certain viewpoint and you know PR people and journalists you know they're not stupid they know that they know how to start a rumor mill and by printing a press release such as what the Justice Department did they will start a rumor mill so that all of those other preconceived notions you had about Stephen Crea or any of the of any of the other defendants well, there you go. The government, the Justice Department, the purveyors of protection said this, so it must be true, and off it goes. All of that is all of that misinformation into the wild blue yonder. And all you have to do is go to all of these groups I mentioned, and you'll see it for yourself. That press release is up there, and the government said Stephen Creer was guilty of these 10 million different crimes and if you try to say well no that's not true this is what happened this is what happened in the sentencing this is what he was charged with you know he wasn't charged with this he was acquitted of that and they'll slap you down and say no that's not true because the government said this and the government you know they're not stupid obviously they know it too and that's why they do things the way that they do so that's the end of that and, you know, it's unfortunate because it doesn't just affect the defendant. It affects their entire family because, you know, it's not just limited to these specialized groups. It's also prevalent in any other neighborhood type groups. I know that there's a lot of them where I'm at in Chicago, so I can only imagine that there's tons of them in New York. And, you know, aside from that, you also have the rumor mill of just regular gossipy neighbors and what have you that just will spread the same kind of misinformation and, you know, it affects everybody, you know, just shouldn't happen. So, you know, when the government is doing a sentencing, they should just stick to the facts and not things that are completely irrelevant to anything. And, you know, and, but unfortunately it doesn't work that way. 
So Stephen Crea's story is not yet over. He is expected to file an appeal and will be staying on top of those proceedings as well. And of course, you know, we wish him and his family the best and hope and pray for three fair and impartial judges that will see the truth of the matter. So that's about it for right now.